Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you are called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires love, for whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ as the Lord Honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah, while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight persons, were safely brought through the water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking, for whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live for the rest of time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. For the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do, living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though uh, judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Word of God. Even if you're not a fan of the band REM, uh, many of you could probably finish the lyrics of the song. I'm not going to sing it, but here it is. That's me in the corner. That's me in the spotlight. Losing my religion. Uh, the band is from Georgia, and in the South, we had this, this phrase uh, that used to say that you lost your religion whenever you, you lost your cool, you lost your temper, whenever you, you jettisoned all your Sunday schooling, whenever you gave in to impulses. And in this text, Peter is urging these Christians in Asia Minor not to lose their religion. See, they have been taught the ways of Christ. They have believed that by grace they are God's chosen people. Yet, government persecution's ramping up. Their old friends and neighbors are starting to distance themselves. There's problems at both work and home. The pressures outside the church are beginning to threaten unity within the church. 
Sin is becoming more tempting than ever. And look, this is not going to be a COVID sermon, but, but man, like, like the past two years have given us a taste of what Peter's congregations are going through. So for all of these reasons, Christianity is a road of suffering. And Peter knows that we are tempted to quit. Like sometimes we don't like who's riding in the car with us on this road of suffering. Uh, sometimes we would rather take the next exit than continue. So here's why today's text is so important. Peter tells us a great mystery, and it's this. Like, like the only road that leads to a good life is the road of suffering. The only road that leads to a good life is the road of suffering. So we're going to take this text in three parts. First, the road of suffering. Second, the Savior who took it. And third, his invitation. So first, the road of suffering. We'll be looking at verses 3 to 17. Uh, verse 8 shocked me whenever I, I really read it for the first time because it's full of commands to the church. See, I was expecting more of Peter talking about how to live in this, this world that's against you, but, but, but he zooms in now on how we treat one another in the church. Outside pressure causes inside problems. So let's camp out on these opening commands for a bit. Look at verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind. Unity of mind. Okay, Peter. Don't you know how hard that is? Peter, can you at least tell us where to draw the line on what unity is if we're supposed to have this in the church? But Peter says it unapologetically. Have unity of mind. If you had the joy of knowing Sheldon while he was with us, you might appreciate this story. Uh, after he converted, uh, we were talking about denominations in the church, and, and we were kind of going through church history. He assumed that there could only be one true denomination, and well, well it had to be the Presbyterians because he loved you guys. Uh, I was teaching him about church history and about councils and, and church, uh, like the church coming together to figure things out. And he told me, Frankie, like what you need to do is you need to get all the Presbyterians and all the Baptists together, and y'all need to have another big council just like Nicaea. And you need to settle all these issues once and for all, and then you can have a unified church. I was like, I, I wish. <laughs> like, that would be great. And look, whenever we uh, meet Sheldon in heaven, we will all be unified in theology. But is that how we take Peter's language here? have unity of mind in that. I don't think so. Uh, not when we pair it with the other commands that we see in verse 8. Look at what Peter says. He says, have unity of mind and sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, a humble mind. Sympathy. In our moments with, in disagreement, are we sympathetic? That is, do we seek to feel what others feel when we disagree with them? Brotherly love. Does it feel like some of your old friends are now more like estranged siblings than brothers or sisters? A tender heart. It's pretty hard to keep a tender heart whenever it feels like people just keep abusing your heart and hurting your heart time and time again. And lastly, a humble mind. Now this actually may be the hardest of the commands because a humble mind cannot say things like, I don't know how so-and-so could ever say that or think that. See, even when we know people are wrong, Peter tells us to have a humble mind. 
See, all these other commands in verse 8, they presuppose that people in the church are not on the same page as one another. Yet ultimately, we're to have unity. We're to, to seek after the same things, unified in mission. And that mission is what? It's to receive the good life of God, what he blesses us with in his word. Look at verse 9, the end of it. Uh, For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Now, it's a hard road. The the road to blessing is filled with suffering. And I'm not talking about like it's filled with getting hangnails or, or, or colds. I'm talking about like suffering for things of the faith. Not repaying one another for what we each deserve. But we carry on together. So hop in the car. And then Peter quotes Psalm 34 as a, as a proof text for this idea, for the principle. Look at verse 10. Uh, Whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let, let him talk back to those who talk back. No, let him t- keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Now, we don't have a time uh, to do like a deep dive on Psalm 34, but King David wrote this during one of the toughest times of his life. He was being persecuted uh, by the, the Philistines on the outside and King Saul on the inside. And it, it had gotten so bad that he actually had to flee Israel and live amongst the Philistines. And he wrote this psalm whenever God rescued him from living amongst them. And the point was this. Even when we feel like there are enemies all around and within, and it seems like those who are supposed to love us seem to hate us, even when we see no earthly benefit to living gently and humbly with one another, we still are to bless others however we can because God says that is how we receive a blessed life. That's how you see good days. So if you're here and you're not a, not a Christian this morning, like this, this may all seem crazy to you. And, and Peter would actually be pleased if you thought that this was crazy. He actually expects like this sort of like turning the other cheek lifestyle to be problematic in the eyes of the world. He expects uh, people to, to be shocked because in his context, especially like, like the Greeks and Romans, they didn't think humility was a virtue. Like, the, the thought of being humble, that's something that comes from Christianity. Back then, it, you, if you got it, you flaunt it. And suffering in those days, it, it was considered to be punishment of the gods. And as well, they didn't have this, this idea of history as, as moving on, progressing to this one goal where, where there would be an end point where all wrongs would be righted. So, so people didn't have something to hold on to, to get them through hard times. They didn't know what to wait for to experience blessings. So, so this is all actually the context for verse 15, which probably a lot of you memorized at some point in your, in your life. Verse 15, look at it. It says, be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. See, a life of carrying your cross should gain the attention of the world, those around you. That is, that's cruciform evangelism. An otherworldly hope in the midst of pain, the turn said, and that is the road to the good life, according to Peter. 
Now, we would all like to think that if we were in World War II Germany, that we would be the sort of people who had sheltered like Jewish families uh, from the Nazis. Like, we would be willing to suffer in the, in the most spectacular ways if it was asked of us. But what about the smaller stuff? Like, are, are you willing to shelter your family from your bad moods? Are your Facebook friends from your judgmental words and thoughts? See, Peter is calling on, on, on people to, to bless others, even, even whenever they don't deserve it, no matter the occasion. And some days the road of suffering is mundane, but it's still the road. So part one, the road of suffering. Part two, the Savior who took it. We'll be looking at verses 18 to 22 for this. Look at verse 18, the first word, look at it. For, for. Again, if you're exploring Christianity this morning, uh, th- this is probably the most important thing you need to understand is we aren't a group of people who like all like the same stuff, so we, we developed rules about it. We're not like a social club. The Christian lifestyle is not a preference, but it's something that we do for a reason. And you'd need a really good reason to take something that we call the road of suffering. That's why Peter starts this paragraph with the word for or since, because he gives the reason. He gives the fuel you need in your tank if you're going to make this trip. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. Christ suffered, and he suffered the punishment that unrighteous people deserve. And it wasn't an accident. He wasn't a failed revolutionary. He didn't do it for fun. He did it for a reason. He took the road of suffering. What does the text say? That he might bring us to God. The only, re- the only way for people like us who've done so much damage, who've caused so much heartache, who've, who've, who've cursed whatever we should have blessed, who've gone against God's commands for so long, the only way for us to have true happiness is for us to be reconciled with the God who made us. So God reconciles us through paying our debt once and for all with his blood. That's the gospel. That's one of the most clear things about the Christian faith. So it's kind of funny that from there we jump into what is probably, what I find the most difficult verse in the whole Bible to interpret. Uh, Look at the end of verse 18 and, and let's continue into 19 and 20. So Christ, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared. I think that in my life, I've studied these verses probably upwards of like 60 hours, if I were to to count, uh, trying to figure what Peter is talking about. And look, there's so many interpretations here to what's going on. Like no matter which view of this passage you take, you're still a minority because there's so many. Uh, So who are these spirits in prison and, and what is going on? Well, one option is that the spirits in prison refer to fallen angels who had offspring with humans and Christ is proclaiming victory over them, like Genesis 6 theory. Uh, others think that refers to God's people of old, that uh, after uh, Christ died, Christ went and preached like in this nether world, like where Abraham's bosom was and, and, he, and he, he brought his people out, the harrowing of hell, they call it. Uh, 
um, and brought him up into God's presence. I, I don't think either of those are, are what the text is going on, but look, I don't know. The Greek is very difficult. There's actually quite a big break between verse 18 and verse 19, so it's not even clear in the text that the spirits in prison are actually the ones who disobeyed in the days of Noah. So look, if I had to guess, and if y'all send me, if I get 10 emails from you saying that y'all wanna know more, we'll have a seminar on it, but look, if I had to guess, I'd say this. Jesus has always put his spirit in his preachers. It was Jesus who preached through Paul's lips and it was Jesus who preached through Noah's lips. In all ages, Jesus is with his people proclaiming the good news through his spirit. And back in Noah's day, God was warning the people of the earth of his coming judgment, that they needed to be rescued from their sins. And so he told Noah to build this ark, like this giant boat. And usually when we tell this story, we tell the kid-friendly version. But, but Noah's ark is apocalyptic. So God pours this flood out on the earth. He opens up the, the, the floodgates of the deep. He drowns all life. Why? Because mankind has spoiled the world through sin. So in your, in your mind, I want you to picture the ark, you know, on the waves, giraffes are poking their heads out, there's some line, Noah and, and the eight of his family, they're waving at you. And then let the camera pan and see all the bodies floating in the waves. See, verse 21 says that baptism actually corresponds to this. Whenever a person becomes part of the church, we baptize them. And it's a symbol of God cleansing us from our sins, like just God, how, how he cleansed the world of evil with the water of the flood. But we aren't saved through an ark, we're saved through Jesus. We're baptized into Jesus. A few weeks ago, Elaine and I were in Florida. Yes, we were in Florida while you were here, most of you. Um, and we saw this Haitian church, and it had the best name. Like right now, we're, we're thinking about planting a church, and we're all, and uh, me and the other guys in the office, we're like trying to figure out a good name. This would be a good one. The name of this Haitian church was uh, Eglise Bateau de l'Evangile, uh, the Gospel Boat Church. I was like, yes, Jesus is our gospel boat. That's who he is. Like we hop into him. That's what baptism signifies. We, we, we ride in him through the flood of judgment, through the waves all the wrath we've earned, and he takes it. He himself is tossed about, yet his people are safe and dry on the inside. And where does this Jesus boat take us? It takes us where Jesus goes. And where is Jesus gone? Look at verse 22. Into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. No better place than to be in the presence of God, and that's where Jesus is taking you. Jesus suffered so much because he wanted us to be cleansed and lived in, live in God's presence forever. That's what he wanted. So get in the boat. It, it, it might be cramped and smelly at times. The other people can be pretty annoying, but it's a big boat, and it's going to the right place. And look, I know I'm mixing metaphors with, with cars and roads and boats and all that, but hop on in. You can take the road of suffering because you have a Savior who has suffered to bring you to the end of the road to dwell with God in blessedness forever. So the road of suffering, the Savior who walked it, and lastly, his invitation. 
We'll be looking at the last paragraph for this, chapter four, verses one to six. Jesus is inviting us to meet him on the road of suffering. Look at how Peter opens this paragraph. He says, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. Arm yourselves. Church, arm yourselves. This is military language. Arm yourselves not with swords or well-timed insults. Arm yourself with Christ's suffering. And you need to arm yourself in the area where you need it most, your relationship with sins. Look at the end of verse one. He says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. This is not to say that believers don't sin anymore or anything. He's talking about repentance in this moment, ceasing from your sin, turning back and going towards his road, following Christ. And he wants us to hold on tightly to the idea of Christ's suffering whenever we are suffering in repentance in our own act of turning from sin. I mean, have you ever felt so tempted by your desires that it seems impossible to deny them? Why would God allow you to go through so much anguish? Like, how could God ask you to suffer the pains of self-denial time and time again? He invites you to suffer as he suffered. Though he did not sin, he felt our sins with every hammer blow that drove those nails through his hands. And he knew that you would, you would never find true joy in disobeying the Lord's commands. And, and his heart was moved towards you. He took the road of suffering for the joy that was set before him, says Hebrews, to reconcile you to God, to make you clean, and to have true joy with God. That's what he wants for you. So in those painful moments, whenever it feels like you are facing your sins alone, or whenever you are in the eyes of the world around you and they are looking at you with a judgmental stare, waiting for you to go along with them, know that Jesus wants something better for you. And that's actually why Peter uses the most unexpectedly gentle language for repentance I've ever seen. Verse 3. He doesn't say, you know, turn from your sins, you morons. He doesn't say, wake up, knock it off. Just, just stop it. Now look at verse 3. He says, the time that has passed suffices. You followed the world, and look, it's clear that you've had enough. Now let me show you where true joy is. It's with Christ, and Christ wants you. You failed a million times, and he wants you. Verse 4, the world wants you to go along with them and is shocked when you don't. Verse 5, they will have to answer with God. It is not your fight. Verse 6, you're not alone. There are thousands before you who have believed and suffered and died and their graves are on this planet, yet they have finished the race. They are with God right now. And as great as that is, there's even more to come when Jesus makes this world new and removes all the graveyards. So look, if, if you're here today, and you're trying to, to figure out things of faith, you know, whether you should believe or not, know that you're invited into this. Jesus wants you. Hop on in. It's not an easy life, but it's the only way to see good days, 
to love life because that's the road where Jesus is. And Jesus says that he was gonna raise up from the dead all that the Father draws to him. So if you're feeling drawn to him this morning, that's his invitation. And for those of us who failed a million times, know this, Jesus hasn't abandoned you. He's right there alongside you in the road. You're not alone. So church, chin up. Suffer well. Love one another. And let us walk humbly with our God along the road of suffering. Let's pray. Father, your grace goes beyond our furthest expectations. Praise you for giving us salvation through your Son. Give us his mind that we may walk in a way that pleases you, knowing we're not forsaken. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.